I am so pleased to be with you in church today. So pleased. Thank you for being here and uh, for giving me the opportunity to think with you a little bit about how to be right now. Please do tell me that someone here voted for Pedro. Somebody. <laughs> I need to know that somebody here has that kind of humor about them. Friends, this morning we are the electoral equivalent of the Tower of Babel. We have been divided and confused, our language confused by scattered emotions. And what we do, and what do we, you know, well, the question is, what do we do in, the, in worship on a day like today? I didn't know when I was preparing this message whether half of you would be very disappointed and half of you secretly glad, or, or, or who is in the room in general. What is the common language then that will draw all of us together under this roof? I want to propose uh, for the winners, for the losers, for the closet gloaters and the doomsday sayers, for the cluelessly confused and the arrogantly sure, for all of us, I want to propose the language of lament. It seems to me that lament is the most honest thing we can do together right now, because no matter who ends up being president, uh, we still live in a fallen world. Let me get an amen. <laughs> still live in a fallen world. And perhaps it is that in the biblical language of lament that we'll find that common prayer that moves us inward toward our center, upward toward God, and outward toward our neighbor in love. So with that posture, I want you to turn with me to the words of the prophet Joel. I tell my people at home the best way to engage a message is with your Bible, something to write on and something to write with. So find your Bible, find Joel. You're a seminary student, you should be able to find Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 1, begins this way, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Most of the Old Testament prophets begin in just that way, the, the word of the Lord that came to, and then fill in the name of the prophet. If you're a prophet, you should duck when you hear that line, because for the, for the prophet, that's a heavy blow. We, we call things prophetic that we don't even remember past lunchtime. But for an Old Testament prophet, uh, when that word of the Lord came, it consumed them. And Joel's word was literally consumptive. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in our days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. We could name our own locusts, right, right now? What the pandemic has eaten, the election has ch ch chomped up. What the election has chomped up, the hurricanes have gotten. It goes on and on. And then he says this, wake up, you drunkards. <laughs> Isn't that the best? <laughs> and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail, 
because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Kind of a fun sucker outer of a passage. He's talking about locusts. We aren't told why these locusts have destroyed the land, only that they have. These locusts are a fact. They have consumed everything. They have even consumed the elements of worship, and they've left the priests mourning for the lack of what they needed to demonstrate, uh, to, to demonstrate devotion to their God. Friends, locusts are no joke. In, in 2003, locusts devastated $2.3 billion worth of crops across Africa. And today's locust infestation in Africa, I mean, this year they have another one, and they say it's the worst one in 70 years. Countries like Ethiopia and Kenya and Uganda and Somalia and India and Pakistan and Iran and Saudi Arabia, all, all in the news already for food insecurities and lack of health care surrounding COVID-19. Now they have to deal with a locust infestation. Can you imagine having two plagues instead of one? And Joel says, verse 12, surely the people's joy is withered away. Nothing in Joel tells us this infestation is some plague from God. Yes, he can take it away, but we don't know he caused it. Most likely, it just was. The land has been devastated by this natural disaster, and now the question is, how will the people handle this very hard thing, which is our question, right? How will we handle this very hard thing? The answer, verse 13 tells us, is a call to lament. The people are told to put on sackcloth, to declare a fast, to mourn, which sounds a lot like repentance, but this is not that. Joel's call is a call to lament, not complain, not blame shift, not apologize, but lament. Lo Alaman teaches me that lament is the African slave singing in the field, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Lo Alaman, by the way, has just produced a, a book of lamentation uh, produced by Seedbed, so how's that for product placement? <laughs> Biblical lament is crying out to God, being real with him about our pain, not to get him to fix it, but to simply acknowledge that something hurts. Someone has called it a loud religious ouch. Lament ushers in hope, but not immediately. It gives us space to feel the pain first, to let our pain surface honestly and without any unholy expectation 
That is exactly why I think we need to learn the language of lament in this season, because lament is not about blame, and it's not angry. In fact, it doesn't begin with us at all. It begins with God. Joel 19 says, to you, Lord, I call. Verse 20 says, even the wild animals pant for you. Lament is learning to turn all our pain for what ought not be the stress of so much hard, and all that ought to be but isn't, to turn all that toward God rather than toward each other. Let me say that again. Lament is learning to turn all our pain for all that ought not be and all that ought to be but isn't toward God rather than toward each other. Friends, we need to lament to learn the language of lament, to let our pain uh, surface in its most holy form and direct it to the one being who can rightly interpret it for us. So we lament all the ways this pandemic has changed the world and the distrust it has bred among us. And we lament the lives it has claimed something like 5,000 every day. And oh, how we lament older adults living in assisted living facilities who can't see their families right now. We lament the pain caused by how we treat race and skin color, period. That's a complete sentence that comes with no answers or justification, it just is. And we lament the locusts, the real, actual locusts that are eating up the food of people in this world who were already hungry. And we lament the stress of this election and, and, and the tremendous division it has exposed. We lament the cancers and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and we lament physical disability and we lament our own unhealthy debt and the fear around finances that has driven us as a country to treat our corporate economics almost like an idol. And we lament abortion and the grief of those who have been part of such a deep tragedy. And we lament divorce and the very hard grief it creates. Can we lament that as a complete sentence without having to add a comma or blame anyone for what is? Can we give space for our cry to surface before God so that God, the one being completely capable of any judgment, so that God has a chance to shape his pay, our pain around his truth? Let me say that again. Lament is giving space for God to shape our pain around his truth. It's, it's, it's a, there's a place, doesn't it? Does it help you to hear there is a place, a biblical place for setting aside analysis and simply being wrecked before God? And yes, we will find in that process that some of it may need our repentance, but before we get there, before we drag out our guilt and shame and our basic haste to, to find and blame the source of our pain, before we get there, the Bible offers us this critical step we too often miss, this simple, deep sorrow for what is, a sorrow that connects us with the heart of God. 
Not just his mind, but his heart, and that connects us with each other as little else can. Today, it seems so very Christ-like to me, so very prophetic to remember that no matter who wins this election, and who knows when we'll know, we still live in a fallen world that deserves our tears. 25 years ago, when I was a student here, Peter Story stood in this same place, and he said this, healing begins to happen when we are part of a community that listens to our tears. Joel will tell us, chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he might even turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Rend your hearts, Joel advises. Before you jump to conclusions, let your heart break. That's lamenting. The art of breaking open your heart, like the flask of oil that woman broke open over Jesus' feet, pouring out inside what is inside of you and, and so that you and Guy both can see and hear what is really here. Don't miss the biblical invitation to simply cry out, the cry that generates in us a sympathy for the world and for all that is hurting right now. And here's the, kicking, uh, the kicker. While knee-jerk opinionating is frustration-producing, lament is a pathway to hope. Whining, uh, whining, that my friend, uh, my friend Faith Edmondson taught me this, whining winds downward, lament winds us upward. It connects us with the heart of God, with his longing for us. Eventually in Joel's story, the locusts relented and God heard the cries of the people and took pity on them. And one of the most hopeful lines in the book of Joel, we use it all the time, Joel 2.25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Such a hopeful thought, isn't it, that on the other side of hard things, God can actually restore all that was lost and bl bring blessing out of it. One of my best examples in my life is my friend and colleague, Heather, whose story includes a couple of really hard decades. The locust swarm of drug addiction plowed through her life and left her divorced and homeless, incarcerated, unemployable. I first heard Heather's lament through the glass of a jail, uh, a visitation room in jail. There was no blaming or anger. She was just lamenting that her life had put her here. I heard her lament again in a courtroom when she stood before a judge and she said that she wanted the second half of her life to count for more. And now the, the Lord has restored the years the locusts have eaten. Heather has one of my favorite people as her husband, Kurt Hill. She, they have a home together. And now Heather is a seminary student. Heather's right over here. She's here this week because she's in class. Stand up, Heather. We are restoring. It's like, a, it's like a picture. The years the locusts have eaten. God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Come on, people. Come on. Come on.
I don't want to overstate the point, probably already have, too late. I don't want you to miss it either. If we miss the step of lament, we risk falling off the cliff, listen, into bitterness and anger or shame or feeling like we're the helpless victim, but biblical lament, giving space for God to shape our pain around his truth, keeps us on a path toward hope. And these days, the world is desperate for more people who carry genuine gut-level hope. Have you heard David Thomas talk about the stages of uh, people who deal with big t tragedies? They've, they've studied them, and, and their stages. The first stage is, is, is sort of a shock. The second stage is uh, sort of a, a rallying cry. We'll, we'll make this work. The third stage is despair. It's where we start to admit this is harder than we thought. It's going to take longer than we thought. And then there's this fourth stage. It sort of is buried inside the third stage. It, it, it's, 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 um, they tell us that in this, in this stage, for some people, the, the ones who have learned, listen, the ones who have learned to process the pain, to give space for lament, to let God shape our pain around his truth. For some people, there's this stage where they find hope. They've torn open their hearts. They've exposed them to God. They have come to terms with the brokenness. They have moved beyond physical circumstances and have set their gaze on God. And now with God as their filter, they find themselves willing to persevere for the hope that God can cut streams through the desert. And they, they tell us that those who find their way through despair into pockets of hope are often the ones who emerge as the leaders. And listen, this is precisely what Joel tells us. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. You have to decide whether you're an old man or not. But if you think you are, I want you to stand right now. Your old men will dream dreams. There's one in the whole place. There's two. There's three. Your young men will have visions. I want your young men to stand up. Even on my servants, both men and women, come on women, stand up. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth and blood and fire and billows of smoke. I ought to hear some amens up in here right now. Receive this prophecy, my people, and I will, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter scoops that right up and he brings it into the New Testament and he says, this is what it looks like, my friends. On the other side of death, there is resurrection. And we, you and I, we get to walk out this whole gospel message. The church on the other side of this locust-infested season has a chance to look, at, uh, to look like revival, but it begins with lament in the valley of decision, Joel calls it, where you and I must grieve personally a fallen world and then decide how to live into this day that we have been given. Never mind, friends, who wins the election. Today, the world needs your broken heart and your cry so you don't run the risk of placing your hopes on the wrong Savior.